Therese Grody, and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system for a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of the Amplify OT podcast. Today we are talking all about discharge planning, specifically discharge planning in adult rehab settings. But before we dive into that, I want to tell you, because I am so excited, that I am finally going to launch my new grad reimbursement guide. Now, I know it says new grad, but this is perfect for any OT, OTA, fieldwork student, who wants to kind of get that baseline knowledge of reimbursement. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is because it ties in really well with discharge planning, because I would argue that you cannot create an effective discharge plan if you don't understand the rules of reimbursement, because whether or not someone goes to a certain kind of discharge facility really depends on their insurance coverage, because I'm gonna say that most of us cannot afford a skilled nursing facility or inpatient rehab facility out of pocket. We're really relying on that insurance coverage. So the new grad reimbursement, without further ado, um, let's dive into discharge planning. When I worked in the hospital as an occupational therapist, one of the main reasons that we got referrals, yes, were for, you know, functional issues, but primarily for discharge planning, because especially in the hospital, they want to know where that patient needs to go when they discharge and they want to know it fast. So that way discharge planning isn't delayed because right, the whole goal is to keep these length of stays short, because generally speaking, the longer a length of stay is in a hospital, the higher risk of poor outcomes, the higher risk of hospital-acquired infections, um, and generally they don't make as much money as they do when they have a short hospital stay. So when a patient would be admitted to the hospital, a lot of times our referrals would say, refer to occupational therapy for discharge planning. And I definitely didn't have an issue with this because I think this is one of our main skills as occupational therapy practitioners is to be able to assign appropriate discharge planning based on the patient's entire function. So yes, any of the physical issues they're experiencing, but also based on that social support, those social determinants of health, you know, really being able to look at that comprehensive picture of why that patient's in the hospital and where what kind of support they're going to need when they leave the hospital. And we're really able to look at that complete picture. But when we're considering what the discharge plan is, we really have to think about that health insurance piece because we cannot usually recommend, I mean, you can always recommend a health and a discharge plan that the patient won't have covered, but the likelihood of that discharge plan being successful or the patient being very happy with you uh, is pretty low. Now, oftentimes, therapists are not the ones who are necessarily executing the discharge plan that usually comes down to our social workers and case managers. And I feel like sometimes there is this struggle between case managers and social workers and the therapy team, because the therapy team can feel like the case managers aren't listening to their discharge recommendations or aren't listening to their clinical judgment. And the case managers are frustrated because the therapy team is making recommendations that aren't reasonable for that patient because of all these external factors. And so 
by understanding reimbursement, we're better able to understand the perspective of the case managers, and the case managers are more likely to take your rep- your recommendations, and you are less likely to feel like your clinical judgment isn't being respected if we understand how this full picture fits together. So yes, we have to understand these social determinants of health, their you know cognitive functioning, their physical functioning, all those sorts of things. But we also have to consider that financial piece. Not only is it part of our code of ethics, but it's also something that the patient expects of us. Just like when we go to the doctor, we expect that the doctor is not going to provide a medication or a test or something like that that is going to be extremely expensive and not covered by our insurance. Well, our patients expect the exact same thing from us. So let's start first in acute care. So when I'm talking about acute care, I'm talking about a patient who has been admitted to the hospital. So this is not to be confused with acute rehab, which is often used to refer to inpatient rehab. So to keep things clear, I'm going to use Medicare terms for these settings. So in this instance, we're talking about an acute hospitalization where someone is either direct admitted from a doctor's office or they're admitted through the emergency room. So in acute care, you have two primary types of admissions. You have an inpatient admission and you have an observation admission. Now, when you're seeing them in a room, it's not like their room is different or they're on a different ward, but the type of admission that the patient is classified as makes a big difference. Now, the reason that there are two different types, especially under Medicare, is because they're billed differently. So if the patient is Uh, admitted as an inpatient, that hospital stay is covered under a diagnostic-related group, which is billed under Medicare Part A. So it's billed under like a bundled payment system. So you aren't really billing individually for your occupational therapy services in a way that Medicare is then going to reimburse individually for your occupational therapy services. But if there's an observation stay, so the patient isn't technically fully admitted to the hospital, then that hospitalization is billed under Medicare Part B. So then you are billing independently for your therapy services, and that patient then has a 20% coinsurance on those services provided under Medicare Part B. Now, you may be asking, why would someone be admitted under observation versus inpatient? And the key difference here generally is that in order to be admitted as an inpatient uh, hospital stay, the doctor has to anticipate that the patient will require at least two midnights in the hospital. So if you've ever looked at an ED note or an admission note and you see that the doctor has written, anticipate patient will require more than two midnights in the hospital, that is why they're putting that in there because that is kind of the Medicare requirement to classify the difference between inpatient and observation. Now there's other factors, but that's the primary one. It's also important to note that their admission status can change even after the patient discharges, um, but that's not worth overly worrying about when you're seeing the patient in the hospital because a lot of that happens on the back end and you're never gonna hear about it, but it's something to keep in mind while the patient is in the hospital. Now, it's not only important for billing purposes that we understand the difference between an inpatient and an outpatient or an observation hospital stay, it's also important for discharge planning because whether or not the patient is classified as an inpatient or observation determines what kind of discharge setting is possible for them under Medicare. So under Medicare Part A, so that's your traditional Medicare, your hospital-based Medicare. So if someone has traditional Medicare, they have definitely have Medicare Part A. So under Medicare Part A, they cover inpatient rehab, long-term care hospitals, uh, skilled nursing facility, and home health. But 
a patient is only eligible to go to a skilled nursing facility if they have had a three midnight stay as an inpatient. So if your patient is classified as an observation stay in the hospital, they cannot go to a skilled nursing facility until their status has been changed and they have been in the hospital for three midnights. Now this is really important because if you think that your patient needs skilled nursing facilities and they're not gonna qualify for inpatient rehab and they aren't gonna do well in home health, you need to talk to that case manager right away to see if the patient would potentially qualify to be changed from an observation status to an inpatient status, because even if the patient has had three nights in the hospital under observation, that does not automatically count towards the three nights towards your inpatient. Now, you may have seen that in the last couple of years, patients have been discharging even without that three midnight stay, and that's because of a COVID-19 waiver, but that's definitely not a permanent thing, and your hospital may not be taking advantage of that waiver. So if your patient is an observation stay and they can't be changed to an inpatient stay, your really only you know, reasonable discharge options for that patient, assuming that they are a traditional Medicare patient, is inpatient rehab facilities, home health, or outpatient. So there are no length of stay requirements if the patient is an observation stay for those three settings. So pretty much if they're observation, it kind of rules out a sniff stay unless you're able to get their status changed. And you have to have a good reason as to why it would need to be changed. Now, inpatient rehab facilities can be kind of persnickety. They're kind of difficult to get into depending on the issue that the patient has. And this is because of a variety of factors. One factor being that generally inpatient rehab facilities tend to be smaller, so they can't accept as many patients as like a skilled nursing facility can. Um, another issue is that it's actually a Medicare requirement that 60% of patients admitted to an inpatient rehab facility have to have a qualifying diagnosis. So this is called the 60% rule. And the diagnoses included in the 60% um, are ones that you would kind of expect who would need inpatient rehab. So to remember what the diagnoses are, I actually just went and got out my adult rehab guide. Um, but the diagnoses are kind of what you expect. So 60% of patients have to have one of at least 13 conditions. So this includes generally like stroke, your spinal cord injuries, congenital deformities, amputation, multi-trauma, um, hip fractures, brain injury, some neurological conditions, burns, um, and then some other ones like some certain types of arthritis or like a hip or knee replacement, but they have to have like a high BMI or uh, be over 85 years of age. So it's kind of what you would expect would go to an inpatient rehab. So if you've ever had a patient denied access to an inpatient rehab facility because they don't have a qualifying diagnosis, that's why. Another issue with inpatient rehab is the patient has to be able to tolerate three hours of therapy a day at minimum five days a week the patient must also need at least two therapy disciplines. So if the patient only needs OT, only needs PT, or only needs speech, they will not qualify under Medicare to go to an inpatient rehab facility. So they need at least two therapy disciplines and they have to tolerate that three hours minimum of therapy a day. So that's not just an inpatient rehab facility thing that they're making up, it's really a Medicare requirement. There's also an issue where some patients don't get accepted to inpatient rehab facility because they don't have a discharge to home option. So for whatever reason that may be, um, sometimes inpatient rehab facilities will deny entrance for a patient because of that. Now that's not a Medicare issue per se, but that's where quality measures come into play. So quality measures, um, inpatient rehab facilities are judged on whether or not a patient is discharged to home. And this 
applies also for or discharge to a community setting. Um, and this also applies to skilled nursing facilities, but obviously it's more of an issue in inpatient rehab. So yes, a patient can discharge to SNF from inpatient rehab, but that's not the preference because if the patient doesn't discharge to the community, it can kind of be a ding on their quality measures. So therefore, inpatient rehab facilities aren't really incentivized to take on patients who don't have a viable option to discharge to the community. And of course, there's always other issues why a patient may not be accepted into an inpatient rehab facility or something like that, because these facilities have fairly much complete discretion over whether or not they accept a patient. Um, The other issue that I've seen primarily with inpatient rehab facilities is with Medicare Advantage or private insurers. Inpatient rehab is more expensive than sending them to a skilled nursing facility. This is primarily due to the higher intensity of therapy. And also there is more staff. There's more nursing staff and physician staff in an inpatient rehab facility. So a lot of times um, Medicare Advantage plans and private insurance plans will deny inpatient rehab and send them to a skilled nursing facility instead. And for Medicare Advantage and inpatient and private insurers, they may not have like that three midnight rule like Medicare does. But to keep things simple, we're gonna primarily just talk about Medicare issues. We're going to talk about skilled nursing facilities and home health next, but we'll be back after this quick break. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right, Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With a MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT Amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% 
off with the code AmplifyOT. That's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support Amplify OT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to MedBridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to MedBridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. Welcome back. Okay, let's dive straight into skilled nursing facilities. So we already talked about that three midnight rule. So let's assume your patient is an inpatient. They've had three midnights in the hospital. They are going to qualify to go to a skilled nursing facility. Now, there are a couple other things that you need to consider when it comes to a SNF. Um, One of them is a Medicare requirement. So in order to go to a skilled nursing facility, a patient needs to have uh, skilled services every day. So this could be nursing care or it could be therapy. So they have to receive some sort of skilled service daily in order for Medicare to cover a SNF stay under Medicare Part A. The other issue that sometimes can prevent patients from going to a skilled nursing facility is if their SNF days are up. Now, if you've heard that their SNF days are up or they're out of skilled days, this means that the patient hasn't had a new benefit period. So Medicare Part A only covers 100 days of a skilled nursing facility day stay. They cover 20 days at 100% and then the subsequent 80 days at 80%. So that makes for a total of 100 days. So after the first 20 days, a patient has a 20% coinsurance on that SNF stay. Now, if a patient has a supplemental plan that can kind of help cover those coinsurances, but we can never assume um, that they have a supplemental plan, but that's something good to check with your case manager. Also, your patient will bring it up if they're concerned about the money. So they only Medicare Part A only covers 100 SNF stays throughout a benefit period. And a benefit period only starts over if the patient has not received skilled services in a SNF for 60 days or if they have been out of the hospital as an inpatient for 60 days. So if your patient went to SNF, they stayed there for a long time, they discharged home, and then they went right back into the hospital, that benefit period may not have started over, so therefore the patient's out of SNF days. So it doesn't mean that they can't discharge to a SNF, but it would mean that they'd have to pay out of pocket, and going to a skilled nursing facility can often be a few hundred dollars per day out of pocket, and most patients just simply are not able to afford that. So then it kind of eliminates the SNF. So if that's something you're concerned about, you know this patient has been readmitted, that they've had multiple admissions recently, that's a good thing to talk over with the case manager, whether or not the patient has any skilled days that are left to see whether or not SNF is a viable option. Now, the other main barrier I see to skilled nursing facilities Um, isn't necessarily a reimbursement issue, but it's more so a patient perception issue that a lot of people confuse SNFs with nursing homes or long-term care. Now, it is important to note that pretty much over 90% of skilled nursing facilities are duly registered as a nursing home, but a nursing home is not the same thing as a SNF. So a SNF is a rehab side, so that's where a short-term stays focused on rehabilitation versus the nursing home is more commonly known as the long-term care. So the long-term care side tends to be where people go to stay and then long-term care is not covered under Medicare. So long-term care is generally out of pocket. So it's important if your patients are like, I don't wanna go to a nursing home, that can be a good conversation to have with them. Look, you know, I understand the confusion, 
but usually most of those nursing homes or those facilities, they have two different types of wings. They might have two different sides. However, they classify it. One of them is for long-term care, and that's the nursing home side. You know, what we're recommending is the skilled nursing facility, the skilled nursing side, and that's for short-term stays. It's to focus on getting you better so that you can go home or go to wherever they're going to go next. So that can be an important conversation to have and to understand those differences to help patients feel better, like you're not just shipping them off to the nursing home, because I've I've heard this from my patients a number of times. That's where people go to die. Um, So it's good to have that conversation and be prepared for that conversation so that you can help guide your patients. Um, into making a good decision and not making a decision out of fear that you're just going to send them to a nursing home and they're never going to leave. So that kind of covers your basics with skilled nursing. So let's go on to home health. And so that's kind of this next stage in this continuum of care. Now, home health can be a little bit tricky. It's reimbursed under Medicare Part A. And an important thing to remember for Medicare Part A is that occupational therapy is not a qualifying discipline. And what this means is that for that start of care, that initial home health plan of care, OT cannot stand alone at that start of care. So there needs to be some other discipline on the order. So whether that be speech, PT, or nursing. Now speech, PT, and nursing are all qualifying disciplines for home health, so they can be the only ones on the order. This goes back over 30 years when the original legislation is written. It's something that AOTA is working on changing and something that we want to change, and there's a lot of support for it, but it has to be made by Congress in order to make that change, which can take a while. So stay tuned on updates for that. But so if you're going to recommend a patient you know, go from the hospital to home health or from SNF to home health, wherever it is that they're going for traditional home health. Uh, If the patient only requires OT, you want to, you know, have that conversation because then Medicare won't cover the home health. So generally you want to make sure that when that case manager or social worker is getting that order signed by the physician, that there is some other discipline on that order in order for the patient to receive those home health services under Medicare Part A. Now, once the home health episode is started, If the PT, speech therapist, nurse, whoever discharges, the OT can still stand alone. But there just has to be another discipline on that initial order in order to qualify someone for home health. I know that's kind of confusing, um, but just the key thing to remember here is if you're recommending home health and you're an OT, make sure that the case manager knows that another discipline needs to be on the order if that isn't um, already in motion. Now there's a couple other requirements for home health and the primary requirement is that the patient has to be homebound. Now this is a big misconception. A lot of people think that if someone is homebound, this means they absolutely cannot leave the home and that's not the case. Uh, In order to be qualified as homebound, it just has to be pretty much extremely difficult, um, challenging or like risky for that patient to be able to leave the home. So the patient is still able to drive. They're still able to go to a kind of a certain number of places like a nursing uh, to go to get groceries They can go to church. Um, They can go to doctor's offices. They can go get their hair done because, you know, that's important. Um, And so Medicare does have some requirements about when the patient can leave the home and how often. But the primary thing in order to be homebound is it just has to be really challenging for that patient to be leaving the home. Um, So that's important to keep in mind as well, that if the patient isn't homebound, if they're like, no, I'm going to be outgoing every day, so I don't know when the therapist is going to be able to come see me, outpatient may be a better option. Now, the key difference here between like home health and outpatient, home health is covered under Medicare Part A. So it's covered under the patient-driven groupings model. uh, And so it's more of a bundled payment system. 
versus outpatient is billed under Medicare Part B. So there's that 20% coinsurance attached. So there's pros and cons to both of those settings, but that's just something to keep in mind. Um, OT is not a qualifying service for home health. Um, and the patient also has to be homebound. So if they don't meet those kind of requirements, then outpatient may be the better recommendation. Now with outpatient, there's a couple different types of outpatient therapy. So when we think of outpatient therapy, we generally think of you go to um, an outpatient setting, you go to a clinic and you see a therapist there. They might be a hand therapist, they might be a general um, OT, but they're working in an outpatient clinic. But now we've also seen a really big growth in mobile outpatient clinics. And so these are therapy practitioners um, who go to see the patient in the home, but they're billing Medicare Part B. And so that's not to be confused with a traditional home health, which is billed under Medicare Part B. So when we're talking about home health, we're generally meaning traditional home health billed under Medicare Part A versus when we're thinking about outpatient therapy or... Um, outpatient in the home, that is billed under Medicare Part B. So that's a good time to know what's available um, in your area because obviously there aren't clinicians who are doing mobile outpatient everywhere. But if there is a clinician who's doing a mobile outpatient in your area, that can be something that's extremely beneficial. So for a patient who may have benefited from home health, but they don't meet the other criteria, then a mobile outpatient provider may be a good option for them. Because I think we can all agree that seeing a patient in the home can be the ideal environment because you're seeing them in their natural environment. You don't have to worry about the carryover. Um, there's lots of benefits to seeing a patient in the home, but unfortunately not everyone qualifies for home health therapy. Now, outpatient is kind of your end of the road in terms of the continuum of care. So generally speaking, when we're discharging from outpatient, there's not really another discharge. You know, once you're done with outpatient, you're kind of just done with therapy. Now, some may make certain recommendations like continuing on with, you know, a personal trainer or cash-based or things like that. But generally, outpatient is kind of the end of that rope. So when you're in acute care, you have any of the options, so long-term care hospitals, inpatient rehab, SNF, home health, outpatient, even hospice or palliative may be the option. Um, and inpatient rehab, generally your options to discharge are to home, home health, outpatient, or SNF. If you're in skilled nursing facilities, your options left generally are home health or outpatient. And then after, when you're in home health, you're kind of down to outpatient or just complete discharge from therapy services. Obviously, from any of those settings, you can always just completely discharge them from therapy. Um, but usually if they're like requiring an inpatient rehab stay, they probably would benefit from some, from some therapy follow-up after they discharge from inpatient rehab. Um, so that kind of covers our bases in terms of making appropriate discharge plans. Now, reimbursement is obviously only one piece of the pie in terms or a piece of the puzzle when we're talking about making appropriate discharge recommendations. Um, but it's something that you definitely want to keep in mind to make sure that one, your clinical judgment is more likely to be listened to if we're setting up the patient for success in terms of a discharge plan. You're going to decrease frustration both for the care team as well as for the patient because there's nothing more frustrating than the therapist coming in and saying, I think you need to go to SNF, and then the case manager having to come in and say, your insurance isn't going to cover SNF. It causes a lot of distrust with the medical system. It sets our patients up for failure. And so understanding that reimbursement piece can be crucial in making those appropriate discharge recommendations and also helping our patients navigate those conversations. Because I don't know about you, but I always got asked by 
patients, you know, does my insurance cover that or does Medicare cover that or how does Medicare cover that? And I would generally avoid, you know, giving a ton of specifics because I follow the rule of I never want to promise my patient that they're going to be able to get a certain type of service because I just don't know all the ins and outs of their specific coverage. But it is helpful to understand these basics so you can answer some of those basic questions before also then referring them to the case manager. And it's helpful as part of that care team where if there's this very specific question that a patient's really concerned about something, I would just let the case manager or social worker know so that way when they go and meet with that patient, they're not blindsided by some of those questions. So I hope this helps. Um, obviously, the, I guess the only setting that we really kind of left out would be long-term care hospitals and or um, LTACs or your hospice or palliative care. LTACs have pretty specific requirements um, in order to go to an LTAC. You generally need an extensive hospital stay. The minimum length of stay in an LTAC has to be 25 days. That's a Medicare policy. So someone pretty much has to be really sick in order to qualify for an LTAC. So for most patients, it's not really a discharge option. You generally need to have like an ICU stay and things like that. So I don't, I never really thought of it. I think I only had a few patients ever go to an LTAC. And then the other option would be your hospice or palliative. And so there's certain requirements, again, under hospice and palliative care and the type of therapy. Generally, patients on hospice um, or sometimes on palliative care don't really receive therapy, or if they do, it's not very much. Uh, so that's just another conversation to have and to learn more about that hospice piece. Uh, you really want to focus on adaptive therapy, so that caregiver training, equipment, you know, home safety versus that rehabilitative. We really change the focus um, when we're seeing a patient on hospice to focusing on not necessarily getting better, but making life more comfortable as time may get short. So those are always those outlier options, but generally they're not going to be the ones that we're going to be seeing as often as we will be in making discharge recommendations to inpatient rehab, SNF, home health, outpatient, or just saying they're safe to go home without any therapy follow-up, which is always great because that means that they're doing a lot better. So let me know if you have any questions. Feel free to send me an email. Um, if you if this is kind of your first time hearing about this information, then I definitely highly recommend you consider uh, enrolling in my reimbursement guide course. I think it's going to be fantastic. I know it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a really comprehensive overview of health insurance, Medicare types. Um, we're going to go even more in depth in the reimbursement types for all of the adult rehab settings. So you know, think of this episode, but then have like a 20 minute video for each one of those settings talking about reimbursement. And we're also going to talk about advocacy and where to find this kind of information. So when you have questions in the future, you know where to go, because I know that can be really hard <laughs> trying to find things on Google or you find a document and then you're never able to find it again. And so that's one of the things I want to teach you all is how to do it for yourself. So you don't need to call someone like me to find the information. You're able to find the information on your own because policy changes all the time. Alrighty, well, thank you so much again for listening to this episode. Send me an email if you have any questions or what you want me to talk about next. I've got PDGM definitely coming up. So home health reimbursement because we did a PDPM episode um, and we'll just keep rolling from there. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast. And I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. 
There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?